So for uh, the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Who? Who? Really brilliantly titled, very complex. Just one, one word, who. Next week, we actually start something really exciting called The Whole Story. And starting next Sunday, we're gonna go through the entire story of the Bible uh, through the rest of our year. We've broken, we've broken the, the whole story of scripture down into 14 different series and we're gonna go through it. And so if you're here for the year, we're gonna go through the whole thing. I, I am, it's a, little, it's a little ambitious and maybe a little bit like nerve wracking, but as it's coming together, I'm, I'm so excited about that. We've actually never done something like this where we've had this, this year long thing. So very excited about that. But today we're gonna wrap up who? And the, the idea behind this is really simple. It's actually something that Madison mentioned in his video. It, it's not so much about what, that's not where we should start. It's about, it's about who. We don't have a lot of control in our lives, maybe less than we would like to think, honestly, in terms of what will happen to us or what will happen around us. That's why, that's why the Bible actually warns us not to get too confident about our plans, about our five-year plans or whatever that is, because we don't really know what is going to happen tomorrow. But the reality is, if you have the right who in your life, you can go through just about any what that life throws at you. If you have the right people around you, the right people in the right roles, you can endure whatever you go through. I mean, in fact, I'm looking at the room and some of you I don't know very well, some of you I know really well, and I see people and I know what you've been through in the last few years. And I've seen the way that you've handled it, the way that you've come through it. And I know that you would say a lot of that had to do with who you had around you. If you have the right who, you can endure whatever life throws your way. And so if we wanna have the, the best year possible, this is kind of the outset of our year conversation, we've gotta get the who right. And we've looked at four different who's. Today's the fourth. Number one was who will I worship? That was the first that we examined. Who am I gonna worship? Who will I dedicate my life to this year? The obvious answer, if you're you know, in a church on a Sunday, might be like, well, yeah, Jesus, but man, it is so easy for our devotion to shift to other things, to just get those priorities out of whack and. And if Jesus isn't in that top spot, then things tend to fall apart for us. Number two is who will I walk behind? Who am I gonna follow this year? Who's my teacher? We talked about the fact that Jesus, to his followers, was a rabbi. He was a teacher. They listened to his words. His words were the ones that replayed through their minds and affected the way that they saw the world. We want Jesus to be the one we walk behind. There was this phrase that we talked about. It was a, a common phrase that may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you walk so closely behind your teacher that the dust they kick up from their feet falls on you. We wanna be that way with Jesus. Last week, we talked about who we walk with and the importance of valuing wisdom in the friends that we choose, especially those close friends that we let in, that we, we, we live life arm in arm with. We wanna value wisdom because scripture says, if you walk with the wise, you will become wise. But if you walk with fools, you'll end up doing foolish things yourself. And today, finally, the last one we're gonna talk about, who will I work against? Who am I gonna work against? Who am I going to maybe fight this year? Now, I'm, I'm a child of the, the 80s and the early 90s. Just out of curiosity, who's with me? Any other kids of the 80s, early 90s? Okay. Um, how many of you raised children in that, in that stage of life? Like the 80s, 90s, you had kids at home? Okay, so if, if, you're, if you're one of us that just raised your hands, you will, you will understand this phenomenon I'm about to talk about. It was called Saturday morning cartoons, all right? Y'all remember Saturday morning cartoons? That was like, I mean, you, Saturday mornings, you woke up early and you planted yourself in front of the TV to see whatever the, the coolest new cartoon was gonna be. It was like a four hour block of, of just nonstop cartoons and it was, it was awesome. I kind of wish it was still like that for, for two reasons. Like young people, little kids today, 
everything's on all the time, whenever they want, whatever they want, whatever episode they want. And so they, they miss that anticipation. There's no like, oh, I wonder what, what it's gonna be. Oh, it's a rerun. I've already seen that one 10 times. Oh, well, it's what's on. Like, you don't have that, right? So maybe there's not that disappointment, but you don't have the anticipation. You have nothing to look forward to because you have whatever you want at your fingertips every second of the day. But mainly, selfishly, I wish it was still like that for parents because I cannot look at my kids and say, there's nothing good on, go outside. I just have to say, just go outside. I know that every episode of everything you've ever loved is on all the time. I don't care, turn it off, go outside. My parents could just be like, well, yep, nothing's on. Go outside. Makes it harder for parents. But, but if you grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons, especially if you were a guy and you watched the ones that I watched, I'm talking like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, G.I. Joe, all right, Transformers, stuff like that, all right? If you watch those, those shows, they were always pretty, pretty easy to, to follow. We're not talking complex storylines. You had a good guy and you had a bad guy. And it, it wasn't even hard to tell who the good guys were or who the bad guys were. They, they didn't make it tough to discern. Like it was, it was so obvious, you know, you had the Ninja Turtles and the bad guy, his name is Shredder and he has giant blades on his arm. Like it's not, it's someone you saw walking toward you in the street, you wanna be like, I wonder if they have good intentions. You know, it's just clearly <laughs> bad guy. You know, G.I. Joe, you had Cobra Commander and, and just a, no, no one would have, no one would have a Cobra. Like the 80s taught us that, Cobra Kai, I mean, hello. Like it's, Cobras are bad. That's what we learned in the 80s. You had, I remember Transformers, you know, you have the Autobots and you have the Decepticons. Their name is Decepticon, which is, if you're trying to deceive anyone, it defeats the purpose if you name yourself the Decepticon, like, so it's not even, they're not even hiding it. And it, my older brother was really into He-Man, Masters of the Universe, anyone watch that show? All right. And so the bad guy in He-Man is Skeletor, and this is, this is Skeletor, and he's just an actual skeleton, like, a, like holding a staff with a skeleton on it. And so you never looked at Skeletor and was like, I wonder if he's the bad guy, you know? And so just about every 80s cartoon ended the same way. Every episode, the, the villain would just throw their fist in the air and be like, I've lost again, and it was over. And those were great. But what they did not do for me as a child was actually teach me how to discern who my real enemies in life would be because they made it so obvious. I've yet to bump into anybody with a skeleton face. Like, I've never met anyone with glowing red eyes where I'm like, what's up with that, you know? I'm watching you. That's never happened to me. In real life, it is much more difficult to discern who's against us. In fact, scripture would tell us that very often we can completely and totally miss the boat on who is actually working against us. So much so that the very people that we would maybe see as our enemies aren't really our enemies at all at the end of the day. And so 1 Peter chapter five, Verses eight and nine says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering that you are. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits 
in the heavenly places. Now, for a moment, just imagine that the first time you're hearing these words is not, it's not in scripture, right? You, if you've grown up in church, you've read these things before. It's not in, in a church setting. Just imagine that the first time someone ever says something like this to you, you're sitting at lunch with someone, you're talking about some situation that we all go through, right? We all have people that make life harder for us than it ought to be. Whether it's people close to us, people that we work with, maybe it's a customer, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's someone that lives in your home, someone in your family. We all know what it's like to have someone that makes life harder for us. Sometimes it's minor stuff, sometimes it's severe. We get betrayed, we get lied to, we get lied about. But there are people that make life more difficult. And you're talking to someone at lunch and you're saying, oh my gosh, this is what's going on and, and this person's saying this, they're doing this and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm at my wits end. And they look at you and say, you know, what's interesting though. That person's not really who you're working against. You're working against evil, dark, invisible forces in an unseen spiritual realm. Okay? Every time someone says something like that, you have to play a little game in your brain. And the game is called, is it true or is this person nuts? That's the game that runs through your mind, right? Because let's be honest, a statement like that, our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against really, at the end of the day, the people that make life harder for us. Our real battle is against evil, dark forces in an unseen spiritual realm. That is a statement that is either true or insane. There's not a lot of like wiggle room there. And so we have to sort of figure out, do we actually believe this? I think it's really important, like students, I know you're here and I didn't plan this for you guys, but listen, your faith needs to be something that you actually believe in, not just because your parents bring you here, not just because you were raised this way, but you wanna to get to a place with your faith, and this is for all of us, that, that you examine your faith, you examine it, you think it through, and you actually have to ask yourselves those hard questions. Do I actually believe this is true? Because if that's true, if that statement is true, then you might need to rearrange the way you think about life and the way you approach it. So let's examine this just a little bit. Is this, is this true? Is this something that we believe? And to what degree do we believe it? So there, there would be people who would say that the world is, is just what we see. It's all physical. In fact, we can kind of just show this. We're gonna use some circles to display this today. Circles are nice, they're helpful. So some people would say, hey, the world is just physical. It's just what you see. What you see with your eyes, everything in this world is material. Anything that we would say is spiritual, that's just stuff we've imagined. That's just, it's just myth, it's just legend. It's just the kind of stuff that we invented in our minds to cope with life, to maybe be able to rationalize the fact that really bad things happen in the world. But at the end of the day, we are all just flesh and blood. There's nothing beyond that. And when, when this thing that we live in called a body dies, we're, it's it. It's like we had, that, that was our run, that's it. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that, is that true? Is there nothing more than what we see with our eyes? Is there no higher power? Is there, is there nothing beyond the physical? And some people would say, no, I, I believe that. And interestingly enough, you know, a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago, if you were someone who was really passionate about science, the entire scientific community was moving as far away from belief in anything spiritual as you could imagine. I mean, the earliest truly like great scientists that made major discoveries that have shaped the world, you're talking like Isaac Newton, people like that, they were all people of faith. They were totally comfortable believing in spiritual 
higher power reality at the same time recognizing the scientific laws of the universe and, and those two things went hand in hand. But a couple hundred years ago, there's this massive move away from that where to be someone who would truly be considered like a rational thinker, you couldn't possibly believe in God or, or the spiritual. But the last hundred years or so, the, the momentum, even in the scientific community, has definitely been way, way, way more toward the idea of some kind of, of higher intelligence, designer, intelligent design, whatever you want to call it. And so, interestingly enough, this whole idea that the world is only physical, it's not even an idea that has the kind of momentum that it used to have. But we have to ask ourselves, do, do I believe that that's the case, that all we are is what we see? Now, I've come to a point in my life where I'm very comfortable saying, no, I believe there is much more than, than just what we see with our own two eyes. I feel like I've experienced enough. I've seen enough things that just do not have an explanation other than magical consequences lining up in a way that doesn't make sense, that I've, I've seen that there is something greater. So then if, if that's where you're at, and I would imagine many of us are there, Maybe not all of us, but many of us are probably like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with the idea. You got up early on a Sunday morning. You could be asleep. You came to church. There's at least some part of you that's like, I think there might be something more. So then we have to go, okay, there's, there's a physical, but also now there's a spiritual too. Now we got two circles. But to what degree do they interact? Because on one hand, they could be totally separate phenomena, right? We have this life and then you die and then you have the, the next thing. And actually, I would say that in kind of modern American Christianity, we've worked really hard unnecessarily, I believe, to separate the spiritual from the physical. We've almost treated the spiritual as if it's impractical. And so, you know, it's very common to have a lot of teaching that doesn't, it doesn't lean heavily on scripture because the idea is like, it's just not practical enough. We wanna make sure that we're teaching people really practical things that they can, they can take and do, with their, do things in their life make immediate change. And some of the spiritual stuff, like it's just, uh, it's not, we've sort of added to this separation, if that makes sense. I'm not saying we here at his hand, I'm saying that like culturally. But the thing is, if, if we are at our core spiritual people, like if you are a spiritual person and there's something inside of you that is deeper and even more real and more long lasting than your body, then the spiritual can't be impractical. Like it's, it can't be. And so we have to ask ourselves, if I believe that there is spiritual and I believe that there's physical, do they interact? Do they have any interaction? And then the question becomes, if so, how much? So some would say that there's a little bit of interaction. Yeah, I believe in the spiritual, I believe in the physical, but like this next picture will show, sometimes they collide a little bit. A great example of this would be Jesus. Jesus is God. According to our faith, he is God. And he's also a man, he's both. So here we have in Jesus, the spiritual and the physical colliding. And we see this in, in moments in the Bible when there's a miracle that happens. A miracle would be a moment where the spiritual and the physical come together and something happens in the real world that you just can't explain other than saying, yeah, it was a miracle. Something unexplainable happened and influenced an event that wouldn't have taken place otherwise. And this can be both, both good, but it could also be, could be bad because as, as Paul, the author of of Ephesians and Peter, the author of 1 Peter that we just read, indicate, hey, there's not just good things in this spiritual reality, there's also evil. Satan, the devil, demons, whatever word you wanna use. There can, be, there can be some negative interaction. Now, I will say that some people, we'll go on to the next one, believe that there's almost 
complete overlap, that the spiritual and the physical are one and the same, and, and every single thing that happens at the end of the day has some type of spiritual root. Every single thing. And, and if that's, by the way, your belief, just know that, that this is a church, that there is room for so many different opinions on how this all works. None of us can claim to be an expert on this kind of thing. In fact, if someone ever tells you they are an expert, they're not. But we can look at scripture, we can look at the world and try to discern the best we can, hey, to what degree can we maybe be a little over the top sometimes? And I have known people that it's like, there, there is a demon under every single rock and it's just, it gets a little weird, okay? I'll give you an example. And I got permission from a friend of mine named Doug to share this, this story. I actually don't know if I got permission. I just told him I was going to share it, so that's different. My bad, Doug. So a few years ago, we had this funny little moment where someone spilled something on the floor in the middle of, of our gathering, big, big deal. And Doug is a man of initiative. He's a man of action. I like Doug. And Doug got up and he went to the back where we have a little storage closet. He knew where that was and he got something to wipe it up with. But when Doug went to flip the light on in our storage area to turn that light on in there to find whatever he needed to clean the mess, he accidentally hit the wrong light switch and it turned all these lights on here in the room. We have these work lights that you know just make this place very bright that's what we use when we're cleaning and setting things up. And so right in the middle of me talking, it's just like, boom, you know, and everyone's all like, what's going on? So I had someone come up to me after the, the service and they were very concerned, very concerned. And they were like, there is something really nefarious happening today. <laughs> and I was like, I thought it was a great Sunday. I was like, I don't, like what, what's going on? And I'm not, by the way, I'm not a spiritual skeptic. I'm a pastor, I'd be a pretty bad pastor if I was like, I don't think anything spiritual is true. And so I was like, well, what are you talking about? They're like, that moment when the lights came on, there is something demonic messing with the church. And I was like, that wasn't a demon, that was a Doug. And those are very different things, okay? And it's, it's, it's something we can kind of laugh at, but, but even, honestly, even though it's funny, we've probably all had moments where something happens Something like just messes with us and we're like, I think there's something more behind this. I get that idea. And some people do believe, they read, they read scripture in such a way that there is always, every sickness, for example, every sickness is because of something spiritual. Now, I believe God can heal any sickness. I believe God can, can do anything. God is God, he's not limited by anything. But I don't believe that at the root of every single disease, medical condition, struggle in life is some spiritual thing. And here's like an example. I actually don't have this on the screen, but in one of Paul, who, who was one of the leaders of the early church, in one of his letters to Timothy, this young pastor that he was, he was raising up and teaching, Timothy was a really influential person in the early church, and Paul wrote some letters to him. At the very end of one of Paul's letters to Timothy, there's this really interesting line where he says, oh, and by the way, Timothy, remember to drink some wine at night. That will help you with your stomach issues. Okay. So we know that Timothy had some type of stomach problem and drinking wine would soothe that. Now, it's pretty clear in that moment that Paul, who's a man of great faith, who's a man who would pray over people, a man that experienced supernatural things, doesn't believe that Timothy has some deep spiritual issue. That the reason Timothy's stomach is upset is because something is way wrong. Because he doesn't say, Timothy, I know your stomach's been bothering you. I want you to call an immediate emergency meeting, get everyone in the church together. We're all gonna fast and pray until it's over with. He just recognizes, oh, Timothy has something up with his stomach. He should drink some wine. That, that'll help him out. Like it's a really small thing. So to me, that's just an example of maybe that there are things that are happening here in our world that don't always have to have some crazy supernatural uh, 
reason or, or something, under the, something that we don't see under the hood that's happening in that way. It's maybe not total overlap. But I also don't think that it's, it's minor overlap either. So what I would probably say is something like this, and this is just, this is me. And maybe I'm okay with it going a little further out. I don't really, it's not, this is not to scale perfectly. But, but I do believe that scripture teaches us that there is a spiritual and a physical reality and there is significant overlap in those. And I believe if you look at the life of Jesus, you see this very clearly. And I'm a Jesus follower. At the end of the day, that's, I'm a Jesus follower. And so what Jesus says, that matters more to me than what anyone else says. And if Jesus believes something is true, then I believe it's true. There are lots of times where Jesus was very comfortable telling the people in his world, hey, I know you guys have grown up hearing this, believing this, forget that, that's not true. And he doesn't do that when it comes to the, the supernatural. Jesus talked about the supernatural. He talked about not just God the Father, he talked about Satan. He even talked to Satan. He talked about the demonic. He talked to demons. I mean, it's, it's there. And if I'm gonna follow Jesus and Jesus had a, a comfort level with that, then to some degree, I have to have that comfort level too. But we do see this overlap in his life all the time. Here's an example. Mark chapter five. Jesus is traveling and he's on his way at this point to heal a man named Jairus' daughter. And it says, when Jesus went with him, all the people followed crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she got no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. She'd heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, which is not a problem I've ever had in life. But that's an interesting experience. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? And his disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask us who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of, of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Your faith has made you well. Think about that statement. Jesus actually says this to many people. Your faith, a spiritual reality, the amount of faith and belief you have in God has healed your body that there's an overlap, that a spiritual reality like faith can actually influence a physical condition. And Jesus says it matter-of-factly, clearly. Your faith has healed you. That's an example of, of overlap. But like I said, it's not always positive overlap. It's not always, it's not always a, a good thing. Matthew chapter four, Jesus has been baptized and immediately after being baptized, we get this. Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. And during that time, the devil came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. It's like, prove it. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I'll give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. 
For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil went away. And angels came and took care of Jesus. So here we have overlap. Jesus is out in the wilderness, which would have been like a desert. He's fasting for a long period of time. He's praying. He's preparing for his ministry. He's about to go public and and in a big way. And he has this interaction with, like, the devil. Just in person. One-on-one. It's it's. So if someone came to you and said, like, you're like, what'd you do yesterday on Saturday? Oh, I had a weird day. You know, I was just hanging out at my house. And all of a sudden the devil shows up, starts trying to get me to do all kinds of crazy stuff. But I was like, devil, I'm not having it. Go. You would be like, again, here's the game that we play in our brains. Is this true or is this person nuts? Right? But Jesus clearly isn't. Jesus, he simply had a comfort level talking about spiritual realities. He talks about it all the time. Spend some time this week, read his teachings. Jesus can just simply, out of one hand, out of of one side of his mouth, just be talking about anything that's happening to someone in the real world, and then all of a sudden, just switch and be like, oh, this is because you have to pray. This is because uh, there's a spirit at work here. It just kind of, he could flow with that really easily. He wasn't superstitious. He wasn't saying that there was a demon around every corner. It wasn't like that. In fact, there were times that people sort of were superstitious. There was a man that had been born blind, and people thought, well, it must be because of, you know, some great sin in, in his, his parents' life. And they asked Jesus that, and he's like, no, guys, that's not how it works at all. He's blind. And he healed him. So Jesus wasn't superstitious. But he was very comfortable with the reality of, of spiritual, spiritual beings, a spiritual world, both good and bad. And, and where this becomes really important for us is, is look, there is someone working against us. We do have an enemy. And this year we will work against someone or something and we better decide to work against the one who's really working against us. Otherwise we're wasting our time and we end up playing right into our enemy's hands. So who are we gonna work against this year? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against unseen spiritual forces that that mean to disrupt our lives and our ability to have a close walk with our God. Again, I believe this is either true or crazy. I've experienced it enough to believe it's true. And I think if we can understand this, if we could actually approach our lives in this way, when we deal with frustrations, when we deal with with rough situations with other people, with whatever's going on in our lives, really difficult circumstances, if we could first stop and discern that very often we are dealing with a spiritual reality that is influencing what what we're experiencing, we could save ourselves a lot of trouble. We wouldn't spin our wheels so much, working against people that really aren't, at the end of the day, our true enemy. So how do we do that? We'll talk about this pretty quickly. It's really, it's easy. It's not hard. This is super simple. I'm just joking. This is really hard. I said, like, how do we do that? As if, like, yeah, I got 10 minutes. We can just, uh... all right. At the end of the day, I think we have to start by recognizing that our enemy has strategies. It says it right there in, in the scripture we read, the strategies of the devil. Some translations say schemes. Like, so our, our enemy has, you might just call it a playbook, there are certain things that our enemy thrives with, certain things that he likes to use. Let me give you some examples. Fear. Fear. We are told in 2 Timothy 1.7 that our God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, 
and self-discipline. Some translations will say a sound mind. Satan thrives on fear. And we don't tend to make good decisions when we're afraid. Have you ever noticed that? How, how poorly you can think when you're really afraid of something? I mean, this is an example I've used before. It's a little bit of a cliche, so I apologize. But like it's, it's like when you see a spider and you scream. Has anyone ever screamed when you've seen a spider? Just be honest. Come on, some of you, like, raise your hands proudly. Come on, I'll raise mine. Yeah. Like that is so silly. The spider should scream, you know? That would make sense. Like, oh my, a giant creature that could squash me with its finger, but we're like a tiny little thing. Ah, like, you know, that's how we are. And, you know, spiders in America, we get, we're blessed in North. We have like the dinky spiders, you know? It's not, like you look at some places in the world, you're like, those spiders are dumb, but not here. But fear makes you do silly things. Like, like it's so silly to jump away from something that you can't even see unless you're like, oh, what is that? Oh, all right. Because when you're afraid, well, the same is true in any situation with fear. When we're afraid, when we're panicked, we tend to make very irrational decisions. And we often make things worse. That's why very often an excuse someone might have when, especially if you're like a parent or, or maybe it's a different type of situation, say, why did you do that? And they say, I was afraid. We just have that phrase there to say, well, clearly, I made the wrong call, but it was because of fear. Satan thrives in fear, but God does not make us afraid. So many times in scripture, God tells us to be strong and courageous. We even read a few here, stand firm. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. We're actually told that by God many times in scripture, commanded, do not be afraid. Why? Because we have a God who's greater than anything this world could ever throw at us. We have a God that is greater than our enemy. It's not even close. It's not, I had a guy one time call me and he was all freaked out because he thought that he was dealing with something demonic. Okay, and I, again, I know this is weird and I'll be honest, this guy actually was really, really weird. And I don't even think it was demonic what he was dealing with, but I was like willing to say, okay, man, hey, that's a possibility. And he was just like, I just, he was freaked out. And I said, have you ever heard the story of when Jesus interacted with a demon-possessed man? Let me see if I even have this story today. I don't, but I can tell it, so it's fine. So actually, it's just before the story of, of Jesus healing the woman who has the, the bleeding issue. There's this moment where Jesus comes up to the shore on, on the Sea of Galilee, I believe. And anyway, this man shows up and he's like out of his mind. And it's not just physical. Something deeper is happening. So Jesus, who's Jesus and just knows everything, looks at him and says, what is your name? And he realizes, I'm not talking to a person. And the answer is like chilling. Because the answer he gets is, I am legion, for we are many, which is not something you want to hear. You know, like if you're working a drive-thru and you ask the name of the person who's placing the order, you know, like if you work at Chick-fil-A, can I get your name with this order? Uh, legion, for we are many. You're like, I am going <laughs> to clock out right now. I do not want. <laughs> I'm ordering a lot of food. So, but this guy says this, and you know, I, I use humor to diffuse pretty much any awkward conversation. But in all honesty, like this is, this is intense. This is, whew. And then when the demons in this story realize who they're talking to, Jesus, the son of God, they fall down. Like they make this man fall down and they beg for mercy. So a lot of people would say that, okay, if there were many demons in this man, a legion could be as many as 2,000 in the Roman military. So like 2,000 demons. 2,000 demons are terrified of Jesus. 
What do we have to be afraid of? It's his followers. I mean, come on. Like if that's, so I told this guy on the phone, like, hey man, look, if, if you got one demon and you got one Jesus, that's an easy fight. Like, remember that. Fear is, is not our friend. Fear does not lead us to make good decisions, but the enemy plays in fear. So if you've got something going on this year, right now in your life, and you're, you're freaked out about something, before you take action, before you do something in the physical this year, stop and discern, am I dealing with fear? Fear is a strategy of my enemy. This is a spiritual thing that I'm dealing with. So before I take any action, before I do anything in the physical, I'm gonna deal with the spiritual reality of fear. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak the truth of who my God is and how great he is and how big he is and I have nothing to be afraid of. My God does not give me a spirit of fear. That doesn't come from him. And I'm gonna deal with the fear so that I'm all right spiritually before I go out and deal with whatever's going on in my life. You start with the spiritual. Start there. It's not just fear though. Confusion. John 8, 44 for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do evil, the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan lies. He lies all the time. And I don't know about you guys, I hate being lied to. Like, I hate being lied to. And we get lied to a lot in our world and our culture. Our culture lies to us all the time. But Jesus doesn't lie. He tells the truth. And truth always trumps a lie, always. Truth always overrides a lie. But Satan thrives with lies and confusions. And if he has you confused, you don't know which way is up, which way is down, you're not sure what's going on. If you try to make decisions out of that, if you try to deal with whatever circumstances you're facing out of confusion, you will make mistakes, you will regret it. But God, God can deal with our confusion and give us clarity. And so if you've got something going on and you're panicked and, and you feel like there's a, a sense of urgency and, and there's something happening in your life and you've got to deal with it, start with the spiritual. Start there and discern, am I confused? Am I dealing with confusion? You know, sometimes we can have some really interesting conversations in our mind where we might begin to assume what other people's motives are. We think we know what their thoughts are. We think they know why they're doing what they're doing. And I don't know if you've ever had this situation where you become convinced that you understand exactly what's going on in someone else's head. And then you talk to them and you're like, oh, I was completely wrong. You're confused and you're like, I wish I could have taken what I just said back. Because you're making a decision in a state of confusion and confusion is a tool of our enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against that. And so first, before you do anything in the physical, start with the spiritual and deal with confusion. Read scripture. Scripture is truth. It has stood the test of time. In fact, later in Ephesians 6, it describes the armor of God and, and truth is a belt. And in a Roman uh, set of armor, everything would be connected to the belt, everything. And so the truth, the belt, literally would hold everything up. Truth holds up. So before you, you deal with something out of a place of confusion, first start with the spiritual. Pray, open up God's word, see what God's word maybe has to say about the situation that you're dealing with and let God bring clarity to your mind, clarity to your spirit before you proceed. Start there. Hatred. Mm. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you, and that way you will be acting as true children, true children of your Father in heaven. So one of the easiest things to do to wreck relationships, your life, is to make decisions out of a place of hatred, where at the end of the day, you're trying to get back at someone. You're retaliating. Someone has offended you. Someone has upset you. And deep down inside, you just really want to see them squirm. I have a lot of regrets in my life. And I have many regrets that have come from me saying something to someone. And at the end of the day, my true motivation for saying it was because I really didn't like them. And I wanted to kind of stick it to them. I mean, especially as a kid, I'm, this is going to shock some of you. I've told you this before, but I don't know how long you've, you've come to his hands. I'm, I was kind of a mouthy kid. I was kind of mouthy. In fact, there was a guy who started coming here recently who uh, had played a lot of basketball with me years ago. And I recognized him. And I was like, hey. <laughs> and he's like, I remember you. I'm like, I, I bet you do. <laughs> and, you know, hatred's a strong word. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we have a, a pretty high capacity as human beings to hate. And it's kind of hard to figure out where's the line of like really not liking someone and hating them. I don't know. I just know that when someone seems like your enemy and they've done something that's made life hard for you, they've said something, they've lied about you, they've betrayed you, and you feel that desire to like, ooh, I wanna, I wanna go give them a piece of my mind. I'm gonna go talk to them. I'm gonna go talk about them but your true motivation is just to bring them low because they've done that to you. Mm. Before you even think about talking to that person, before you even think about responding to whatever it is they've done, start with the spirit. Start with that place of hatred in your heart. Let God bring you to a place of forgiveness because man, if you can have those same conversations with a heart that's forgiven that person, even if they don't deserve it, none of us deserve forgiveness, come on. If you can forgive that person, you might find that you don't even need to have the conversation. You might actually have the ability to do something very few human beings can do. It's just let it go and move on and have a burden be lifted. Hatred, ooh, that's a tool of our enemy. Temptation. This is a big one. Temptation. I love that we read the story of Jesus' temptation. And, and this is something I've, I've taught on before. It's one of my favorite little details in scripture, like one of those little nuggets. Like the third temptation, Satan's like, okay, here's the whole world. You can have it, which is silly to offer to Jesus because he has the whole world already, right? He's like, it's like small potatoes to him. He's got the universe. And then he's like, hey, jump off this tower. I don't even know what that one's about. Like do something, maybe it's like do something cool and everyone will be like, wow. Jesus has no problem making people say, wow. He, he had that covered. The first temptation though, right? He's super hungry. What does Satan tempt him with? Say it, someone yell it. All right, we got half, half bread. That was like, how <laughs> you know, that's what it sounded like from up here. But it's because we had half, half the people saying bread, and then the other half of the people who have been here before and I've talked about this said stones, or you're just super smart. Not that the people who said bread aren't smart. Ooh, I've offended you. Deal with the hatred in your heart, forgive me, and move on, okay? Sorry. Yeah, Satan doesn't offer Jesus bread. He offers him stones. He says, hey, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread and eat that, which is really rude. Like someone's hungry and you come up and give them rocks. But you know, Jesus once said this, not, a, a, not that long after this experience, he said, you know, you parents, if your child asks for a loaf of bread, would you give them a stone instead? 
That's the exact experience Jesus had. But it's just that he was smart enough to recognize that he wasn't being offered bread. He was being offered a stone in place of bread. And that's what Satan does when he tempts us. It's not with something that's really good for us. It's not with something that'll actually meet our needs. It's like a stone. And so if that's a relationship and it's a tempting relationship and you know it's not from God, but uh, it just looks good. It is not bread. It is a stone. Stay away. If you feel tempted, you feel drawn and there's something in your spirit that's like, I know this isn't right, but man, I wanna do this. Whatever it is that you wanna do will not bring you satisfaction. It will not solve your problems. It will not make your life better. It is a stone masquerading as bread. And I don't know what happens to a human being if they eat rocks, but I can't imagine it's good. So before you make a decision in that, that state of temptation, start with the spirit. Start there and say, Lord, I'm being tempted right now. I can feel it. I'm being pulled and, and I feel this compulsion. Start there and let the Lord help you discern the stones pretending to be bread. Otherwise, you're gonna play right into your enemy's hands. We'll go through these next few really quickly. Accusation, look, the, the, the enemy is an accuser. In fact, his, the name Satan, that's a title really, Satan, it means the accuser. Satan accuses us. He both tempts us and then he accuses us. And when we feel accused, right, we all know that feeling when you just feel like you're the worst. You have that thought running through your head. You're horrible. You're terrible. You're worthless. You failed. You always fail. You have those types of thoughts running through your mind. That's not from God. Because if, if the enemy can bring us really low and make us feel really small, we very often turn to really unhealthy coping mechanisms to deal with that feeling. And so when you start having those thoughts run through your mind, before you do anything to soothe yourself, when you feel that way, stop and start with the spiritual. Don't do anything in the physical until you've dealt with the spiritual accusation that you're facing. And you respond to that accusation with the truth. You know what the truth is? I'm a child of God. I've been forgiven of everything. There is nothing that my enemy has against me because I belong to God. And whatever sins, whatever mistakes, whatever failures I've had, they've been forgiven tenfold because Jesus died on the cross for me and that is more than enough for my sin. You respond with the truth. One last thing, doubting God. This will be the last one and then we'll, we'll, we'll transition to, we've got some people getting baptized today, which is awesome. It's great. We're gonna take Lord's Supper right before that. We're almost done. Doubting God. Genesis chapter three. It's the first sort of, temptation situation we find in scripture. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, and the serpent here is almost always indicative of Satan, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And then this whole exchange happens. You can read it if you never have. It begins with, with putting some doubt in her mind about God. Did God really say and it gives her this idea that maybe God's holding out on you. Maybe God hasn't been up front with you. Maybe God's lied to you. Same thing happens with Jesus when he gets tempted, right? Satan says, if you are really the son of God, which is sort of to suggest that maybe you're not. Maybe, you've, maybe you heard wrong. Maybe you're just sort of like crazy, like the other people who have said they're the son of God. It's doubt, and specifically doubting God. We've all been there. We've all had moments in life where we see something that happens and it shakes us. And it's hard to reconcile some of the evil in the world, some of the tragedy in our own lives with the idea of a loving God. And I wish I could tell you that there's some really easy one sentence solution for when you're struggling with doubt. But what I can tell you 
through experience is that right now I can scan this room because I've been here for 16 years and I can see faces in this room right now that in the last year to two years alone have been through things that are harder than any experience I could possibly imagine in my own life. I'm talking real tragedy, real pain, the kind of stuff that most of us would just pray never happens to me. It's a diagnosis, it's the loss of a loved one in a really tragic way. It's the kind of stuff that should break a human being. It's the kind of stuff that if that person said, I can't even believe in God after this, you would kind of go, I understand. And I've seen those people not just survive, but actually grow, get stronger, be a blessing to other people around them, have an endurance that does not make sense because God is with them, because God has not forgotten about them, because God is in their lives. It's kind of a cheesy statement, but I heard it when I was a teenager and I'll always remember it. Someone said that we're kind of like toothpicks. We're not that strong, but with God, we're toothpicks that are duct taped to a lead pipe. Again, it's cheesy, but it's memorable. There's nothing that our enemy would rather do than make us doubt the goodness or even the existence of our God. Because the enemy wants us weak. And when we have God, we are not weak. When you have God in your life, you are not weak. You are so strong. You are stronger than you know. You are stronger than you realize. And the worst things you could imagine happening in your life can happen to you. And you could actually, you could actually endure through it and overcome more than you realize because God is real, he is alive, he is in you, and there's nothing that he cannot overcome. There's nothing that he cannot guide you through. So when you feel that, that doubt, when you're overwhelmed with, with doubts, whether they're small or big, don't make a decision out of doubt. Start with the spiritual, pray, get on your knees, wrestle with God, be angry with God if you need to be angry with God, yell at God if you need to yell at God, ask God a million questions, he can handle your questions and just wait and see what he does because I promise you that if you hold on to God, even in those hard situations, he will give you peace. He will displace all the pain in your life. Maybe not all of it. That will happen when we get to, to, the, to our final place. But he'll displace more of it than you might realize. And he'll replace it with a calm and a strength that you can't even imagine. Because I've, I've just seen it happen too many times to wonder if it's real. So we'll wrap it up by saying this. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We have an enemy. It's a spiritual enemy. And our enemy would love for us out of a place of fear, confusion, accusation, temptation, hatred, or doubt. Our enemy would love us to live in that place and make all of our decisions in that place. And when we do that, we fall right into his trap and we fight all the wrong enemies because we're, we're stuck in all those things. But if we start with the spiritual, if before we make any decisions in the physical, we say, you know what? I'm gonna deal with these, these things that are happening within me. I'm gonna deal with the doubt. I'm gonna deal with the temptation. I'm gonna deal with the, the hatred and the anger. I'm gonna deal with the lies and the confusions. I'm gonna deal with that with my God and let him clear that stuff up. 
Then all of a sudden, we're sober-minded. Then all of a sudden, we're able to have the clarity to make the decisions in the physical that we need, and we do not play into our enemy's trap, and we live lives of victory instead of lives of defeat. And that's what we're meant for. So, this year, 2023, pick the right who. Worship the right who, walk behind the right who, walk with the right who, and work against the right who. And see what God does with your year. We're gonna wrap up by taking Lord's Supper. And so if you wanna go grab bread and juice, if you didn't grab it on your way in, feel free to do that. You're never messing us up to do that. It's fine. It's fine. I would, I would never want someone to miss out on this because you just forgot to grab the cup. So Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11 says, then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser, right, the enemy, the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they have defeated him. They've defeated the spiritual enemy of ours, what? By the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. By the blood of the lamb and by our testimony. When we take this little meal together, it's kind of both of those things at once. It's, it's representative of, of Christ's sacrifice, of Jesus' death on the cross and his body being broken, his blood being spilled. And it's also this moment for us to have a little testimony to say, hey, this belongs to me now. This death that he died and the victory that he won on the cross and when he rose from the grave, it's, it's part of my story now. I'm covered by his blood. I'm covered by his sacrifice. So when we take this together and we remind ourselves of, of what's happening in our lives because of Jesus, we are doing exactly what Revelation is saying. We're defeating our enemy by the blood of the lamb and the power of our testimony. Jesus has defeated Satan. He's a beaten enemy. I always like to think about it in sports terms because that's just how my brain works. It's like when, like yesterday, I took my, my son Judah, got to take him to a Duke game um, and it was awesome. And Duke played Georgia Tech. If you're a Georgia Tech fan, I'm just really sorry for what happened yesterday. It was like 40, it was like 40 points. It went like 40. And like the game was over early. It was over. It wasn't even a question but the clock just hadn't run out yet. That's where we find ourselves with Satan. Game's over. Satan lost, Jesus won. It's just the clock's still running. And in the meantime, we have to just keep contending until the end comes. But he has been defeated by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus, by the power of our testimony that we belong to him. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this piece of bread. We thank you for what it represents. Your blood or rather your body being broken on the cross. Lord, we receive this. We receive this right now. We take this in, grateful and thankful for what you've done for us, full of faith that your sacrifice is more than enough to cover our iniquities. Let's take the bread. Let's pray for the juice. Lord, thank you for this juice. This represents the blood of the lamb. Lambs were what was sacrificed for years before you came. And you're often called the, the lamb. You are the, the last and living lamb. Your blood was spilled for us. And this blood paid the price for our sin and our enemy has nothing on us now, nothing, zero. All the accusations, they all fall short because it's been forgiven. We thank you for this, Lord. We love you. Let's take the juice.